I'm good. I think I'm am I my good there, Phil. Doing a good job, mate. Phil's just learning the ropes back down there. Second night, Phil. Just hiding behind the uh, sound desk. I reckon it sounded good tonight, Phil. Good job, mate. Well, we might just pray and then um, we'll get into it. Lord, what a what a fabulous song. How could I but love you? And I just think about everything that you have done. Just so that I could, I could love you. When I think about everything you've done so that I can have a relationship with you, Lord, I just want to say thank you. Lord, we ask tonight too that um, your blessing would be upon tonight. Lord, I pray that um, you would speak tonight. Amen. Well, indeed, as Phil has said, we're starting a, a new series in Ephesians. And, um, you know... Normally when you're kicking off a new series, you like to get in a really good gun speaker, someone who can really set the stage for the series and uh, excite people so that they'll come back. And uh, we thought perhaps Bill Hybels, because, you know, Joffy's such good mates with Bill, and um, he would start it off and then you'd all be inspired and uh, that'd be great and we'd get him back at the end and it'd be wonderful, but apparently they're not as good of friends as what Jonathan sort of tells us and he wouldn't come. So naturally, I was the next choice to, um, to kick this series off. So honestly, it's going to be a great book, Ephesians. We've got 13 weeks of it. Now, you might think 13 weeks is a bit long, but uh, we suffered through Big Brother. That took about 13 weeks, and uh, we got through that. So I reckon Ephesians is a lot better than that. So pen it in. Next 13 nights, you're going to be in for some, some, uh, some great stuff. It's, it's probably one of, I reckon it's one of Paul's uh, better works. It's, it's, a, it's a book unlike, or a letter unlike any other that he's written. Uh, it's not written to address any particular issue in the church, but it's more of an all-encompassing oration and a prayer a great, of, of God's great work. His purpose for us is perhaps above all a letter of encouragement and admonition written to remind us believers of our immense, immeasurable blessing in Jesus Christ and, and, and to understand all that God has done for us. Not only to, to understand that, but to be thankful and to live in a, in a life manner worthy of such a position. Phil said it earlier, know it, live it. It could be a phrase that you hear a bit uh, through this series. So I'm going to read the passage. We're starting in Ephesians, obviously starting in chapter 1, verse 1, through to four, verse 14 tonight. So... Got your Bibles, open them up. Paul, I'm reading out of the NIV, I think. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will <clears throat> to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, for the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace 
that he has lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. Hang on, I missed two words. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under, the, under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who God possesses, who, who God possesses to the praise and glory to praise and his, of his glory. Well, when I looked at this, I thought even Paul's greeting drips with a wonderful sense of understanding of his faith. While he's using a fairly standard style of, of introductory, Paul exposes his understanding of his position and the position of the believers. Paul takes his standard greeting of introduction by, by saying who the author is and who the, and who the audience is to a higher level. He describes himself and the listener in view of their relationship with God. Paul is an apostle. Why? Because he loves to preach? Because he thinks that uh, there's handy perks to being an apostle? Free accommodation in prisons? The odd beating or stoning? No, on the contrary, Paul has been struck by a deep truth, which is sometimes hard for us believers to fathom. Paul is an apostle because God desired it to be so. It's not through any merit of his own. Paul is what he is by the will of God. He then turns to the readers and describes them as saints. Saints literally means holy ones that are set apart for a purpose. This is not a description of their pious lives. Rather, Paul's primary concern was to emphasise that just as he has been appointed as an apostle, they too have been separated to God. They were not holy because of their actions, but because God has set them apart, called them to be his people. The focus is entirely on God's actions and sets the tone for the rest of the passage and the entire book. Two questions come to mind when I read Paul's introduction. Could I start a letter like this? Confident of my position in God. Confident of who I am. Of my relationship with God. And secondly, could, I, could someone send a letter to me like this, starting it like this? That they're confident. That what they've observed of me, I am in God's will. My life speaks of it. This is the aim of Ephesians. It is to encourage this confidence in every believer. Our faith has a deep strength behind it like no other. After Paul's greeting, he launches into what I can only describe as a euphoric outburst. You know, it's a little like when Carlton finally beat somebody. And as a Carlton supporter, you were just overjoyed about this. And it's just welling up inside of you. And you want to tell somebody, you're ringing people, you're texting them your mates who are Carlton supporters, just to let them know about the great joy of this. 
send the odd text message to an Essendon supporter just to let them know that they are now on the bottom of the ladder. This is the picture I have of Paul. He's just exploding with the joy of his message. He can't hold it in any longer. He wants Christians everywhere who will read this letter to know the depth and the magnitude of the faith they have. It's Paul's pen. His song of praise, of joy, of triumph. It's written, it is literally one long sentence with no full stops or commas. Just 202 consecutive words. Just expression after expression. And with each successive thought crowding in and crashing into the one before. When we read what Paul has written, we are washed with concepts like election from the beginning, sonship by adoption, redemption, which means forgiveness, insight into God's all-embracing purpose, the privilege of becoming his people, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our final inheritance. It also reveals that the salvation of every believer involves all three persons of the Trinity, that our salvation is because of the great workings of God's plan of love and grace, which he has unveiled and completed in his Son, and that he seals with his Holy Spirit. There are three themes running through this anthem of praise, or three um, things I reckon we can take home. God's eternal purpose is God who works all things according to his plan. And this plan speaks of our immeasurable value and worth. And that this purpose, this is the second point, this purpose is fulfilled in Christ. Because of God's love, he provided a way back to him. And this purpose is guaranteed. The Christian life is sealed with a mark of God's Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first point here in Ephesians, and I mean Ephesians 3 to 6 now. Paul starts this section with blessed and it sets the tone of Paul's appreciation of the deep truth which has gripped gripped Paul's imagination so as it just spills from his lips and flows from his pen it was the understanding that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ had blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ this was no enthusiastic reflex or response to emotional stimulus because he just spent the week at Hillsong. It was a product of profound understanding of God's dealings with humanity and in particular with his work through Jesus. In verses 3 to 5, Paul uses phrases like choice and election, before the foundations, adoption, etc. to describe God's work, God's activity, there can be no doubt that this world is in desperate need of meaning and identity. And in these complex, complex verses, a simple truth emanates. Humanity has value. It has meaning. And it's not just a reaction either to what's going on. It's not like God went, oh, poor world. What can I do about it? Our meaning and our value was defined before time. Right from the, before the very foundations of the earth, God has desired to have a family relationship with you and I. So it is that we see it is God who acts in eternity to bring about this relationship. And, to the end, and at the end of verse 4, we're exposed to the motives of God's activity. It says, in love. God's dealings with humanity are motivated by his love. 
They are not motivated by anything that we can do or say. This is emphasised by the fact that God has designed the Christian life and all its blessings before time. If you like, he has predestined this life you could live. Let's see if I can capture the essence of it for you. Paul is saying that God, the Father, has before time desired a family, an intimate relationship. So he's put in place a plan to make it possible. Paul wants you here to focus on the fact that it is God at work to draw you to him, to adopt you into his family. God values humanity. Look at his creation story. He creates a planet, an earth. He just speaks and it happens. And then he separates the water that's on it. He makes a, a canopy around the earth and creates atmosphere. And then he separates the water that's left on the ground and he makes land and he makes sea. And then into that he starts placing things. Into the sea he starts placing fish and stuff. And onto the land he starts placing trees and plants and all sorts of things. And then birds and stuff into the air and, and so on. I might have the order a little mixed up. But all the time God is taking progressive steps in his creation to create a climate that he can put the pinnacle of his design into. Whole creation. All that work was done just to place you and I into so that we could be made in his image to have a relationship with him. Look at the way David, the psalmist, says it in Psalm 139, verses 1 to 18, paraphrasing him. There's nothing God doesn't know about you, thought or deed. He formed you, wove you in your mother's womb, says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's like an artist covered in paint, putting the finest of details into his work. So too, the heart and the character of God goes into every single created person. His character comes alive when we allow God to work in us. No wonder Paul is joyed. No wonder he is overwhelmed to exclaim, blessed, blessed be God. He has blessed us with everything. He has held nothing back. Paul describes or speaks of God's plan like adoption. God has ordained that every Christian is part of his family and therefore a recipient of all the privileges. You know, when human parents go to adopt, they don't just run down to the corner store or jump on eBay. Well, not all of them anyway. They make preparations to get things in order. There's a lot of thought and effort that goes into adopting a child into your family. So it was with God. And he has done all that is required for you to be in his family. And it was all done before history began. You know, when human parents adopt a child, this is a great thing. This child has hope of a new life, a better life. The parents can give their love and resources and material inheritance to the child. But the one thing they cannot give to this child is their own personal distinct characteristics. But when you're adopted into God's family, you have at your disposals the full resources of heaven, as it says in verse 3, but also God miraculously gives you his own nature. You become a children in the image of his divine son. It is like you are reborn into his family. You know, if ever there is 
a more defining acknowledgement of our worth, and we yet to find it. Here's our first point. God has always wanted a relationship with you, and he has done all the planning and all the work to make it so. Before this world began, you were on his mind. The second uh, theme in this, in this passage as it moves along is that God's purpose is fulfilled in Christ. The God of eternity came near, intimately near. In 1 John 1, we see with John's writing, that which was from the beginning, that which we have seen, which we have looked at, and our hands have actually touched, God came near. And verse 6 acts like a refrain or a link to this next part. To the glory of his grace speaks of God's revealing. His plans are made known. The work of Jesus, his self-disclosure is a gracious God. God is the origin of love and grace. And we, or us as it says in the passage, are the object of that love and grace. And his beloved Jesus is the modus operandi of this love. God has always wanted to know us, but humanity chose to reject this relationship. But his love has persisted like a parent of a runaway child. Down through history, God has just been waiting to reveal his glorious plan of love. And just at the right time, he did. In verses 7 to 12, Paul speaks about the work of the Son, the agent of God's love and grace. It is through the work of the Son that God fulfills his plan. Humanity now has access to redemption and forgiveness. And the concept of redemption, that is salvation or deliverance, is, is not foreign to Paul's listeners. Well, For us, when we hear the word redemption, it invokes images of frequent flyer points. We've been able to check how our credit card's going to see if we can redeem enough points to get that Gloria Jeans coffee to drink with Jonathan down at Gloria Jeans. Paul's listeners, though, knew well the great acts of God in the past to redeem Israel out of slavery, slavery under the Egyptians and out of bondage and out of captivity, the time they spent as prisoners of the Babylonian Empire. The fundamental idea of redemption is that of setting free a thing or a person that has come to belong to another. It refers to prisoners of war, slaves and criminals who are condemned to death. The idea that Paul is trying to convey by the use of these words is of a ransom being paid to set those incapable of setting themselves free, this ransom can come and set them free. Humanity has become captive to sin. Now sin is not poking your sister in the eye or killing your mum or stealing the church offering. These are all very bad things to do. I think my mum's here actually. It's a bad thing to do, mum. But they are the outworking of sin. They are the effects of sin. Sin in essence is a rejection of God. And it leads to such things. But we are incapable of paying the ransom needed to free us from this curse. But, Paul, but what Paul is saying is that God's grace is greater than this sin. And our situation. And that in wisdom and insight, he lavished his grace on us. Now I like words. 
as a bricklayer, you come across some quality words and quality expressions that just succinctly express the emotion that someone's feeling. You hit your finger in the morning when it's about minus two with a, with a hammer and compress it against some bricks, you're going to hear exactly, succinctly, what that person is feeling. It's going to be colourful, lavished. It's a good word. I like it. God lavished his grace on us. Did he, did he pour a little bit out and say, that'll do you, mate? Did he hold anything back? As I might do when I'm dishing out the ice cream at home, worried that it might run out, worried that you know, there might not be some for tomorrow. This is not the case we've got. It's unending. He lavishes his grace on us. Jesus, God's beloved son, would be the ransom, the way he would lavish his grace on us. Jesus, who in Colossians, Paul describes as the one in whom all things were created. Jesus was there before the beginning of time. He is present when this plan of salvation is laid down. That is why he is called the author of life. This is no fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants plan or, no rea- or just a, a reaction to sin. It has been calculated and costed, and the outcome has been found worth it. Jesus would take our place in death. And even though... He knew we might let him down and stumble in our Christian lives. His love drove him to that cross. Jesus would pay the price for humanity's rejection of God. As Paul puts it in his second letter to the Corinthians, He, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be our sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Here's the transaction, the mystery of God's plan now revealed. When we trust in Christ, when we reorientate our lives back to God, an exchange takes place, our sin, for his righteousness. Our sin is poured into Christ at the crucifixion and his righteousness is poured into us at our conversion. Crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, was the mystery, the plan laid down by God to redeem humanity back to himself. The work of Jesus on the cross has enabled us to come back into relationship with God, back into this family, this intimate relationship. This is the second point to take home. God has held nothing back in his plan. Jesus, the beloved Son God, Son of God, his death and resurrection has made it possible for us to be in God's family. The third point of of this passage that I've picked up is that we are sealed with his Holy Spirit. There's a protection and a promise that goes along with this plan. You know, no no matter how many guarantees are kicking around these days and how good they claim to be, there's not too many that say, no, forever, no matter what. I used to have a, a mobile phone. I still do, actually. Anyway, my mobile phone came with a warranty. And one day, after a particularly insolent builder was talking to me on the phone, my phone had a high-speed impact with a brick wall. It, uh, I often like to think about it, actually. I can imagine this guy going... 
What happened there? So I took my phone back to Telstra and said, this phone doesn't work, it's got no reception. It was in a little box, pieces and stuff. <laughs> and they looked at it and said, okay, what happened to it? So I told them, I said, I threw it against the wall. They said, look, our, our warranty doesn't cover that kind of abuse. And I looked at it, it had their little logo on it, Telstra, making life easy. I said, but you told me this phone was shockproof. I was a bit disappointed with their guarantee and their warranty. At the end of this song, this prayer of praise about God's design and plan for us, and his work through history, through Jesus, his work in history and through Jesus, that we can come into a relationship with God, Paul says in verses 13 to 14, he says, you have heard this message of truth. You have believed in it, are included in Christ. When you received the gospel of salvation, you became a part of this family. And when you did that, God sealed you. He gave you his Holy Spirit as a pledge and a guarantee of your inheritance. The picture that Paul is trying to use here, or one of the images that Paul's drawing upon in the time was the loggers, people who cut down trees, up around Asia and that, would cut their trees down, cut their timber down, and they would float it down a little um, passage of water there down towards Greece. Now each individual logger had their own stamp, their own seal that they would place on their logs. So as all the logs kind of floated down and got down to Greece, all the, all the logging company or the logger had to do was to walk over the logs and look down at it and see his seal. He would know that that log... <coughs> belongs to him. I've lost my spot. God puts his seal on us so that we can be identified in him. You know what? Sometimes we, we wonder about this. Sometimes we, we fail him and sometimes we might stumble but we persevere in our Christian faith. And God looks down at us and he sees that seal on us. And he says, that black's mine. You know what? I often think about this. And I imagine Satan accusing me of things I've done. He did this. He did that. He doesn't deserve your love. But God looks down. He sees the seal of his Holy Spirit on me and he says, that black's mine. You nick off. I was going to say something else. Remembered where I was. No, I wasn't. <laughs> this seal, though, has a twofold application. It has a now application. Now that you, now you've received this inheritance, but you still live in, in this world. In John seventeen fifteen, Jesus talks about it in a prayer. My prayer is not that they would be taken out of the world, but they would that you would protect them from the evil one. God has given us the ability to live in this world. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's called a comforter, an interpreter, a revealer, a guiding truth. The list goes on. You truly are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have at your disposal the very counsel of God, sealed in his Holy Spirit. Paul's also talking about the future, a wonderful eternity, the inheritance that is now sealed for you, 
of life in heaven, a perfect fellowship with God, like it was supposed to be. You see, it's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done and is still doing and promises to do. The third thing, God has sealed you. You are his. You should live to praise his name. As Paul finishes off this passage, you are God's possession. Praise his name. Are you like Paul? Do you have this amazing understanding and depth, the strength of the faith that you trust in? And Paul understands all of that that we've just talked about. He's just singing it out, writing it out like a prayer. He just can't contain it. Can you contain it? Do you know it and live it? Is your life an anthem of praise to God? So many people give their lives to various causes, trying to find meaning and value. And that value is defined by what they can give to the cause. I'm a member of the Carlton Football Club. It's a beautiful time at the moment. But I'm an interstate member, not a gold one or a silver one. So therefore I'm only entitled to a little key ring and a card that says I'm a member. But when we make the decision to be a member of the family of God, nothing is held back. There are no priority seats in this family. There is no special favour to gold class members here on earth. Your prayers aren't answered first just because you went to church three times this Sunday. You're a silver class member here. There's no merit or payment or work you can perform. It's all been done. It's all been paid in full, all sealed before the foundations of the world. God designed, designed a way of knowing him. He acted in time revealing himself to make it possible. He has guaranteed your future. Why? Because you are valuable to God. Everything God did, He did so you would come. <laughs>